Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Blue Grid Podcast. Did you know that according to the CDC, one in five Americans suffers from some sort of mental illness and antidepressant use has risen 65% since 1999? But what if the key to treating mental illness can't be found at the pharmacy, but lies in the very foods and nutrients we eat every day? Leading scientists Dr. Bonnie Kaplan and Dr. Julia Rucklidge revealed their groundbreaking research in the better brain, overcome anxiety, combat depression, and reduce ADHD and stressful nutrition. Today, our guest is Dr. Kaplan, who is a professor emerita at the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. Welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us today. I would like to start right away by asking to tell us the scurry story that you write about in your book, The Better Brain, and why it is important. Thank you very much for inviting me and for starting out with this amazing story, because it's a lesson in how we don't want things to proceed with mental health. So it's kind of a cautionary tale. But everybody now understands that we have to have a wee bit of vitamin C every day to avoid scurvy. And everybody kind of knows that scurvy used to be a problem. Well, I don't think everyone understands it was a huge problem. All of those men, because I think they were virtually always men, who set out on long voyages in the 17th and 18th centuries, mostly from England and Spain, etc., they had a 40% chance of dying, not just getting sick, but dying from scurvy. Scurvy can be a fatal disease. And nobody knew what the cause was. People didn't even know what vitamins were in those days. But along came a ship's captain named James Lancaster, who in 1601 somehow had a suspicion that there was a dietary component to this terrible disease that was killing off his men on every single long voyage. And he experimented with some citrus, and he ended up thinking that he had kind of solved the problem. Policy didn't change. And then a ship's doctor, over a 100 years later, his name was also James, Dr. James Lind, he said, let's do a randomized controlled trial. Now, they didn't have that terminology then, but that's what it was. And he randomly assigned people to get different kinds of things like apple cider vinegar or seawater or oranges or a lemon on his voyage. And he proved without a doubt that citrus fruit had a significant impact on scurvy. Did policy change? No. Long story short, it took 264 years before the British government said that every ship had to provide citrus fruit on their ships. And then not only was the mortality rate eliminated, but people didn't even get sick. You can prevent and cure scurvy by having enough vitamin C every day. Why did it take 264 years? So that's one of the reasons that we wrote this book, frankly, because Julia and I don't have that amount of time to wait. We want to change the system of mental health treatment now. I love that story. And I didn't know about the amount of time it took to change policy. And that leads me to the next question. Why did you decide to publish this book? I know you had about 300 peer-reviewed publications, but you wrote this book just recently. It came out in April. Well, I think a lot of it was frustration. Julie and I have dozens and dozens and dozens of publications on nutrition and mental health. 
we and the rest of the world have shown that there is no question that nutrition is the foundation of our mental resilience and our physical resilience. And oddly enough, if I may just say this, Anya, our ancestors knew this and we point to some of the historical knowledge. It was absolutely clear, even in books in 1910, telling people if someone starts developing psychiatric symptoms, it means they're not eating well enough. But it's this psychopharmacology revolution that intruded in the 1960s and 1970s and our Western society especially just became very tuned into pills, magic pills. Oh, you know, if I have an infection, I take an antibiotic. If I have a mental problem, I'll take another pharmaceutical. So that kind of attitude has meant that all of the current research since 2000 showing without a doubt that we could be preventing and solving much, maybe not all, I'm sure not all, but much of mental disorders with nutrition, we can't get the attention of the public. The media will not cover it, by and large. It's been really tough. They love carrying negative reports because, you know, there's that old saying, if it bleeds, it leads. So if you find that somebody thinks they got sick from a vitamin, that gets a lot of attention. But a randomized placebo-controlled trial showing prevention or elimination of some kind of psychiatric disorder doesn't get into the public awareness at all. So that is why we wrote the book. And why do you think that mental health providers, physicians, and healthcare system in general are quick to dismiss any published scientific research on any aspect of nutrition's role in mental health? And there is certainly plenty of research on that. Yeah, it really comes down to education. What do we teach our children in elementary school? We teach them maybe to eat well, they get that lesson, but what they're taught is it's so that they have strong muscles and bones. I mean, in fact, most of the RDA recommendations for dietary intake, it's based on physical health. There's nothing based on mental health. And that's from any government that I know of. So if you teach your children that the reason for eating well is for your bones and muscles, they don't know that it's much more important for their brains. And so it all comes down to education. And even in medical school, we tell the story in the book that I personally have had so many physicians say to me, because I've always been in medical faculties, people who knew that I was doing good work, but they were puzzled by it. They would say, Bonnie, those minerals and vitamins that you're studying, they don't really work in the brain, right? And that kind of blows me away that <laughs> there are still physicians who don't know what nutrients do in the brain, but it's not their fault. It's not taught in medical schools either, not to any significant amount. And could you discuss whether nutrients can or cannot be patented and kind of how money potentially plays a role in that? Money does play a significant role. There are one or two rare exceptions, but by and large, there is no patenting of natural ingredients that has any impact on providing money for the manufacturer. So the example I usually give is if I were a natural health product manufacturer, and I'm not, by the way, your audience should know that I'm not affiliated with any company, but suppose I wanted to produce a vitamin C that had 100 milligrams, and I patented. I could patent it, and I could make some money because nobody else could probably duplicate exactly that 100 milligrams. But you could come along and make one that's 105 milligrams, and that doesn't violate my patent. And for the general public and for human physiology, there's no discernible difference. So I have no real patent protection. And so the drug companies are only motivated, of course, by profit, as any company is. And so they have not gotten into the natural health product field at all. There are one or two exceptions. I know that that's related to how our clinical practice guidelines are written. Could you talk yes. about that too? Yeah, may I tell the story I tell in the book about the case of Andrew and when I really learned about all of this? I was doing my research for most of the significant portion of my career within a tertiary care children's hospital here in Calgary. And we present the case, and it's published in the peer-reviewed literature of a young boy who developed really severe psychosis at the age of 10. 
And by that, I mean he had hallucinations and delusions. He thought he had committed murder, and he thought he had committed adultery. He was convinced his food was poisoned, etc. At any rate, he became an inpatient in the mental health unit at our children's hospital. And he was there for six months. And we have some excellent psychiatrists. It's tertiary care hospital that serves a large population. And they tried him on all kinds of medications. So he went through six months of medication trials. And then they kind of threw up their hands in despair and said, we haven't been able to help him. And so we're going to send him home and you can take him to an outpatient psychiatry clinic. Now, I didn't know this family because I wasn't working on inpatients. But when they went to the outpatient psychiatrist, that psychiatrist was someone who I did know a bit. And the family called me and asked me to get involved because they wanted to try micronutrients. And I'll define that term in a minute for your audience. But a broad spectrum micronutrient formula. So I got involved. And long story short, the child improved to the point where he never had hallucinations or delusions again. He still has some residual anxiety. By the way, that was in 2009. So that's more than a decade ago. And he's doing quite well. He has to take his nutrients. He has what we think is an inborn need for an unusual amount of nutrients. Anyway, so the outpatient psychiatrist and I presented this to psychiatry rounds in the hospital where the people had known him as the most difficult patient they remembered ever trying to treat. And so the psychiatrist who was my host for the rounds, I said to him as we walked out, so shall we talk about some other patients who you might want to work with, with minerals and vitamins? And his answer bowled me over. He said, no, not until they're part of clinical practice guidelines. Well, clinical practice guidelines are set in both Canada and the U.S. by committees of people. And in the book, we give the statistics on the proportion of people who have pharmaceutical company connections. And clearly, the pharmaceutical company has financial connections with the majority of people who are making those guidelines. And so I am sure that not in my lifetime will nutritional treatment be part of the clinical practice guidelines. And that's heartbreaking because I think about all the other children at that mental health patient unit who could have been helped by micronutrients, and they won't be. Sorry for the long story, but maybe that's going to reveal for your audience just how challenging it has been to get through to policymakers and why we have written the book at the level for the general public. We think it's time to wake up the general public. Could you explain the difference between nutrients and what specifically we're talking about and what is required for our brains? This is a really important thing. I try not to use jargon, but I have to use that one term on you. So macronutrients are the large categories of things like proteins, carbohydrates, fats. Everybody's familiar with those, and probably everybody listening to this podcast is getting plenty of all of those macronutrient categories because in Western society, generally we are. What is deficient, and there's very good evidence of this, and we provide some of the American data in our book, what is deficient in the majority of us are the micronutrients. And we generally use the term micronutrient to refer to minerals and vitamins. Now, some of them are listed on some of your packaged foods, which I hope by the end of this podcast, you're going to decide to stop eating, but instead eat whole foods. But anyway, we do get a little bit of information about the amount of calcium or something that's in there. But by and large, we just don't know whether we're getting enough minerals and vitamins. Sometimes micronutrients refers also to essential fatty acids, but usually it's the roughly 15 vitamins and 15 minerals. That's how we use the term. What specifically is required for our brains? Well, more than that, actually, we focused on minerals and vitamins, so that's roughly 30 of those. And we do talk a little bit about essential fatty acids. But then if you eat whole foods, you're also getting this huge category of nutrients called phytonutrients, which means plant nutrients. And the estimate is there are over a thousand of them, or there should be in our food. 
And for many of them, I don't think they're even named yet. Some of them you've heard of, like lycopene. But for the vast majority of them, we don't even know what they do in the brain. We just know that we must have evolved to need a lot of them because we've evolved with the plants that are feeding our brains. You wrote that, and I'm quoting, likely many mental health problems might emerge because our brains aren't getting the nutrients they need. What evidence do you use to support this claim? Now, this is a long answer that I'll try to give briefly. But in the book, we review four categories of research to prove that. In my opinion, and I think I'm fairly rigorous in the way I look at this data, there is no question that it is proved. We have correlational data, at least a dozen population nutritional epidemiological surveys done around the world showing that people who eat more of the whole foods and therefore are getting more nutrients have fewer symptoms of mood and anxiety. So that's correlational. Then we have prospective longitudinal studies, and this has been shown in children as young as 11. There aren't as many studies because they're harder to do, but it's been shown that you can take a group of people and look at how they're eating and come back a few years later, and you can predict the outcome of their mental health a few years later. Actually, I'd like to give you the most dramatic one, which relates to suicide. There's an excellent longitudinal study from Japan. This is by Nanri et al. from British Journal of Psychiatry. And what they showed is that when they characterized the different kinds of dietary patterns in people, the people who ate the most whole foods diet a number of years later had 50% lower suicide rate. I mean, it's depression. It's what all the other research is showing. Depression is associated with poor nutrient intake compared to people who ate more processed foods. So I know that in the military, you're very concerned about suicide. I'm not saying that inadequate dietary intake can explain all of suicide, especially in the military. But I just want you to know it's a factor that's overlooked. And we wrote the book to stop people from overlooking it. And then, of course, we have treatment studies and we have whole of diet. So the third category is whole of diet studies, three in a row all showed that you teach people to eat better and you cut their rate of depression. And then Julie and I have done the bulk, not all of them, but the bulk of the nutrients in pill form, supplement studies. And every single one of our studies has shown a significant impact, significant benefit in people with diagnosed problems who are then even in placebo-controlled trials, given a broad spectrum, roughly 25 to 30 micronutrients. And they show improvements, usually across the board, in terms of brain health. There's more. There's even prevention of dementia studies we mentioned in the book. I think anybody who really reads the whole book will be amazed at how much solid scientific research is out there that is being ignored by our policymakers. You earlier said that are really good interventions that we could implement, for instance, for suicide preventions or in general for mental health within the military is improving nutrition. And I think that maybe a lot of people don't quite know what good nutrition is. You wrote that about 50% of what we now putting into our mouths doesn't even qualify as food. What is real food? What should we eat? The 50% figure, I just want you to know, that's probably an underestimate. The 48% was from Canadian government data from 2004. They haven't published a more recent one. And there's a lot of similar data from the US. But what is food? You asked a really important question. Have your listeners thought about why we eat? You know, before I got into nutrition research, I used to say, "Ah, eating takes too much time. I wish I could just take a pill once a year and then I wouldn't have to eat. Well, it doesn't work that way. Our brains need all of these nutrients every minute of every day. So why? Because that's food. Food is anything which helps cells grow or function. So now pick up your favorite box of highly refined, junky kind of cereal. Maybe it's your secret vice. And take a look at what's in it. Is there anything there that is going to help your brain 
have better cellular growth or function? Of course not. And that's why I say ultra-processed food, we shouldn't even be calling it UPF, ultra-processed food. We should be calling it UPP, ultra-processed product, because it's synthetic product, which dominates at least 80% of every grocery store now. 80% of what is in there is just chemicals and sugars and stuff that is not feeding our brains. North Americans don't eat enough vegetables. We also don't eat enough fruit, but it's even worse in the vegetable area. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, we're such a constipated society, because we're not getting fiber, which is relevant to the microbiome, which I imagine you'll get to eventually. Right. And so can we talk about the soils, though, first? You know, so I put some lettuce and I put some tomatoes. I actually don't eat meat, but maybe I'll make something vegetarian. And what do soils have to do with the quality of lettuce and tomatoes I consume? We have a half a chapter in our book about the soil microbiome. Now, I think the general public now knows that we have to pay attention to our own microbiome. We actually have many microbiomes. There are different microbial communities in our mouth, in our eyebrows, in our gut, but the vast majority is in our digestive system. But the soil also has a microbiome. It's a complex microbial community. But 97% of the arable soil, this is the figure I've heard, I'm not sure I can back that up scientifically, in North America, has been treated with pesticides and herbicides like glyphosate, Roundup, etc., which sterilize the soil. And so the microbiome of our soil is a huge concern. And people who are looking at nutrient density of their crops, and this is a growing field, are getting very concerned that we are feeding our public nutrient-poor, impoverished crops. So let me back up a minute and make one more statement about how this all fits together. The way plants work is they have to absorb minerals from the soil. And there are 15 or 16 of them in the soil that most plants require. If they're in the soil, they're absorbed by the plant. And then the plant does something that we humans cannot do. Well, there are a lot of things they do that we can't do, but this is really important to our nutrient intake because they manufacture vitamins from the minerals that they've pulled out of the soil. So if the minerals are not there, they're not manufacturing enough vitamins. They might grow really well. You can make plants look beautiful with fertilizer like NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, add some calcium. You've got really healthy looking crops. But if they aren't carrying the zinc and the copper and the selenium and the molybdenum, etc., that we need, then when we come along and eat those plants or eat the animals that eat the plants, we are not getting all of the vitamins and minerals that our brains need and our bodies, but we're talking about the brain today. One of the most striking parts of the book was your discussion of the conversion of amino acids, or particularly of an amino acid known as tryptophan, to a neurotransmitter serotonin. And this is related to your earlier point. You wrote that we need three minerals, iron, phosphorus, and calcium, and one vitamin B6 for serotonin breakdown so that our brains use serotonin. We need two B vitamins, niacin and riboflavin and one other mineral, molybdenum. We need five minerals and three vitamins for this process to be completed. What does that mean for those of us who are simply low on one or a few of those minerals and vitamins? So first of all, it's important for your listeners to understand you need more than those, what was it, eight or whatever. In chapter two, we show a little diagram, but I really want to emphasize it's an arbitrarily small, tiny diagram of a vast network of metabolic pathways in our brains. I selected that tiny little piece 15 years ago because it fit on one slide, okay? So you get the idea of how arbitrary it was. But you can look at any other piece, hundreds and thousands of places in the brain, and you will find that every single metabolic step requires minerals and vitamins. They are called cofactors. That is one of the words we should learn in elementary school. 
that is why we need this broad array of minerals and vitamins, because they are the cofactors which enable the enzymes in every metabolic step to do their job. And if you don't have the cofactors, it's like trying to run a car without enough gas. The enzymes cannot fully do their job. They cannot work optimally. You will have, I sometimes call it sluggish pathways. This is not a technical term, but I'm just trying to convey the sense to everyone that there are parts of their brains that are not going to be working at their best unless you are giving them lots of cofactors all the time. Right. And for instance, if I am deficient on one or a few of those cofactors because the soils are deficient, then that means potentially my serotonin levels are impacted, correct? Absolutely correct. And although I can't prove it for serotonin in particular, there was kind of a summary of about 50 such, they're called inborn errors of metabolism when people inherit sluggish pathways, that's my term again, because they seem to require an unusual amount of cofactors for the enzymes to work. And so this has been well known for years and years. That summary was published in 2002 by Bruce Ames and mostly related to physical health, but it's been known for a long time that you need ample nutrients that function as cofactors so that all your pathways are working at their very best. Right. And then do you think that there are people who are genetically predisposed to some breakdown in this complex chain, meaning that maybe there's some deficiency or what you call a sluggish pathway? Yeah, you know, this brings up a really interesting thing. Probably some of your audience is thinking, well, I'm going to go get myself tested. The tests that are available are by and large serum levels of nutrients, which are taken from your peripheral blood. There is no way to evaluate what's circulating in your brain. So that's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. But what's really missing is we have no way right now to determine what your brain needs. So for example, Anya, maybe your brain needs more molybdenum than mine does. Maybe I need more iron. Maybe you need more copper. I mean, there are all these individual differences that likely exist, and there is no way to determine them right now. So that's why using a broad spectrum formula where you just pee out most of the extra because most nutrients are, they're all at safe levels. So it can help hit all those pathways. And it's not totally satisfactory. Someday we'd like to be more targeted, but we can't right now. Do you feel like if we all ate whole food diets, that it may be possible to eliminate many of the mental health disorders? I think I can rely on the research for this, that the research shows that we would solve a lot of depression and anxiety with just, just Listen to me, I'm always critical of people who say something is just vitamins, and I was about to say it's just dietary changes. These are not trivial things. This is what we're made of. So it is definitely possible, based on the scientific studies, that we would prevent and treat a lot of our mental health problems if we got people off of the ultra-processed food items, which are really not food, and got them to eat only whole foods. And by the way, in the book, we should say something about cost, Anya, because people think that it's more expensive to eat that way, and it is not. And that's been shown in research. We have to dispel this myth that a Mediterranean whole foods kind of diet means eating lobster and steak or whatever and spending a lot of money. But in our book, we provide you with recipes and some cooking advice on how to save money on a whole foods diet. I imagine people listening to this podcast would say, okay, so should I just go to the nearest GNC and purchase multivitamins? What would you say to that? Well, first of all, Julie and I really propose a whole foods diet first. Let me come back to GNC in a second. But it just makes no sense to continue a poor diet and add nutrient supplements on top of it. You're just wasting your money. And we don't really know what a lot of the artificial ingredients are doing to us long term. So 
<laughs> how can I say this? Don't do it. Once you've read the book and you understand the importance for your brain, I think you will be motivated to eat a better whole foods diet. Now, the place for supplements is a second step. It's not the first step. If you're going to take supplements, however, and if it's for a mental health problem, unfortunately, most of the formulas that are available through GNC or any other you know, over-the-counter situation, they're not bad for you, but they're kind of trivial amounts. Chapter 11 in our book, we really go through all of the multi-nutrient formulas that have been subjected to research in mental health, not physical, mental health. And some of the research has been kind of one-off stuff. People put together a formula, they do a study, they show great results, but nobody else can replicate it because it's not available. <laughs> they just kind of kludge something together. We've been very fortunate, Julie and I, in being able to study some formulas that were developed here in Canada, which have been around for over 20 years, which were developed for mental health, we are not affiliated with the companies. I don't even want to say them here on the air because I always get accused of working for them and I don't. But they have the most research. I think it's 45 or 50 peer-reviewed publications on them now. And when you look at the content and compare them to what you would get over the counter, and one of Julia's students did that and it's published, what you find out is that the research formulas have much higher doses. They're still within safe limits. I mean, there's nobody's doing mega doses or going to make anybody toxic, and there's never been a significant adverse event. But the broad spectrum formulas that have shown under research conditions, shown mental health benefits, are unfortunately limited now to two or three. We would really like to have more. We have both even approached companies and asked permission to study their formulas and they've turned us down and i tell the story in the book about how the scientific director at one company said to me why would i want you to study our formula we're making money which is very depressing so for instance some of the multivitamins that are being sold over the counter or gnc are there any peer review studies on some of these minerals or supplements, or is it always sort of just a claim, you know, take this vitamin, it works? Some of them say they have research, and if you look at the research, they've funded it. So it's not independent research. I see. Nobody who has studied any of the formulas developed in Alberta has ever taken any money from the companies. We set that policy 20 years ago because I grew up in this era of pharmaceutical companies funding drug studies. You can see how the mental health literature has been corrupted by that. And I just thought it was important that all of us agree not to ask for or take any funding from these companies. I don't let them buy me a cup of tea if I encounter them. I just don't want anyone to see our data as distorted or influenced by the companies. I have a similar question about probiotics and prebiotics. If you could talk a little bit about that, and again, there's so much over-the-counter product that markets itself as being really good for your digestion. Let's talk about gut health. Anything that we can do to improve our gut health is very important. I just read a summary from Scientific American. It was in a nature summary, actually, that said that there's now proof that our microbiomes were more diverse, like two to 6,000 years ago, I think it was, and that there are populations of microbes that used to be in the human gut. They can tell this from archaeologists who study the ancient poop, basically, <laughs> and that they have gone extinct. They called it a mass extinction because we have less diversity in our guts now than our ancestors did, and that's not good. Diversity in our gut is good. How do we get that diversity? A lot of it is by feeding the healthy bugs that are there. I'm going to say bugs because even though the vast majority of the microbes in our gut are bacterial, there are some others. Let's distinguish between prebiotics and probiotics. Prebiotics are the food that your healthy bugs consume. They need that. So when you're eating prebiotics, you're feeding the healthy gut bugs. Where are the prebiotics? 
in the produce section of your grocery store. Someone once said we should have signs in the produce section of every grocery store saying, everything you see here is a prebiotic. I'm not sure it's that simple. What kinds of things would go in that section? The fibrous foods. Think about every crunchy vegetable and fruit that you can eat. Whereas the probiotics are a way to replace bugs in your gut. And that's especially the fermented foods. Or some people buy probiotics in pill form. But just eating some fermented foods like kefir or sauerkraut or something every day or two, some people report feeling a benefit right away. These are all important for our general health. But I need to say something about mental health. I wish that we had some terrific data to show that eating probiotics or taking probiotics in pill form were helping people with mental health problems. But as we point out in the book, the data are not there yet. But there's a perfectly logical reason why this is hard to demonstrate. It might be true for some individual people. They might feel that they're thinking more clearly or feeling calmer if they're taking a probiotic. The problem from a research perspective is that there are like no two probiotic formulas that have the same distribution of species, the same quantities, the same balances. And nobody really knows which ones to put in pill form for mental health. So the research isn't there yet. We might have some breakthroughs coming in that area, but it's not there yet. Therefore, just go back to the whole food diet, sounds like. Whole food diet, it's going to give you your prebiotics to help your gut. It's going to definitely improve the nutrient availability of cofactors for your brain. Add in some fermented food if it seems to benefit you. And don't forget your exercise and your social networks and all of that too, but you will have better mental health, most likely. Because the primary audience of this podcast is military or those associated with the military, I wanted to ask you to talk about your work with trauma survivors. What did you learn? We actually have published a recent article on this, and we also have a recent blog post that summarizes it that appeared on the MaddenAmerica.com website. It's an amazing accidental line of research that is mostly from Julia Rutledge. I contributed a bit. And it all started because she was in the middle of doing research in Christchurch, New Zealand, when the first totally unexpected massive earthquake hit in the fall of 2010. And she, when things settled down, not that they really settled down because they had 8,000 aftershocks over the course of the next five months, followed by a huge earthquake in February 2011. But she managed to locate 15 people who were in a clinical trial of broad-spectrum micronutrients, roughly 15 people who were taking that formula at the time of the crisis, and roughly 15 people who had been taking it but were in a different phase of the trial or whatever. They weren't taking it at the time that first earthquake hit. And she analyzed the data, compared them, and published that and showed that the people who were taking the formula at the time of the crisis were much more resilient. And within four weeks, I think it was that first study, she showed probable PTSD scores drop from about two-thirds of the population down to 19%. Those numbers might have come from the second study. She did two or three in a row there. The point is that People whose brains were better nourished at the time of the crisis were more resilient. They bounced back. Their stress levels came back into the normal range in two to four weeks. Their depression levels, etc., was very strong. Well, what happened then was we had a, a major flood in Alberta. And so Julie and I did a study long distance of what happened to people who were randomized to different conditions after our flood. There's a big difference between people who have a flood in one day, but otherwise are not being seen for emotional problems and don't have other after floods the way you have after shocks or earthquakes. 
So we didn't really think we would see the same magnitude of improvement, but we did. People who were randomized to get either a broad spectrum micronutrient formula or B-complex, and help me, we'll come back and talk about B-complex in a moment. Within four to six weeks, we're in the normal range for stress levels, etc. They recovered. They were more resilient. We had an active comparator. So did Julia in one of her studies. And in those active comparator agreement conditions, ours was a low-dose vitamin D, people did not normalize in four to six weeks. They were still really elevated. Hmm. That's two things. So earthquakes, floods, and then there were the mosque massacres, the mass shootings in Christchurch a couple years ago. And a whole lot of people were in terrible shape after that. And Julia, for clinical application, she evaluated how they did taking micronutrients if they chose to do that. And they tracked exactly the same. The people who took the micronutrient formulas improved back into the normal range for stress and anxiety in four to six weeks. In the meantime, just one other data point I'll mention to you. In Alberta, we had massive forest fires a few years back. And I went to all the policymakers and I said, look at our data from the flood study. Look at what's happened in New Zealand, et cetera. Can we at least tell people to go to the store and buy a bee complex? Because that might help them. And I was not allowed to do that. It was referred to psychiatry. And they and the dietitian said, no, no, no. We'll just tell them to try to eat better. Which when you've got 90,000 people who no longer have their kitchens because they've had to leave their homes, I don't know how you're eating better. I'm very frustrated about that, needless to say. So that's the summary of that line of research. There's no question that we are more resilient if we are better nourished, brain and body. You asked me to bring you back to B-complex. I don't think there's a shred of data to suggest that B-complex is going to have a significant impact in people who have a mood or an anxiety disorder. But there is evidence, quite a few studies from around the world, showing that in general populations, in maybe a group of college students here, a group of employees there, people in southern Alberta who had a flood but were otherwise not suffering from any diagnosed disorder, that B-complex alone daily decreases stress levels. And That's important to know. I've recommended it to friends who have been widowed, people who have unexpected crises, but otherwise are not struggling with a mental disorder. B-complex is very, very important for our brains, and you can buy it very cheaply over the counter. I don't have a brand to even recommend because every study has been with a different brand. It's just extra B vitamins. And by the way, extra B vitamins are also extremely important for prevention of dementia. The Vitacog trial from Oxford University, which we described, showed that clearly. I would like to ask about toxicity level, particularly in B and complex B, because I have seen that it's quite possible to reach that level, especially for those people whose B6, B12 might be in the normal range, quote-unquote, or at least detectable through a pretty standard blood test. My memory is that B12, there's almost no toxicity level anywhere, and vegetarians should probably be getting extra B12. B6, I don't recall. I can tell you this much, which is if you go to any store and buy a B-complex formula, mm-hmm. they are not megadoses. They are below potentially toxic levels. So you'd have to take more than, I suppose, if you swallowed a bottle, you can kill yourself with water too if you drink too much water, right? It's always in the dose. And if you follow what's recommended on the bottles, you're not going to be at toxic levels. I don't think it's a big worry. One of the things we had in a graph, but I'm pretty sure it's one of the things that ended up on the cutting room floor. The last week when we were writing our book, we had to cut 10,000 words. Mm. We were cutting and slicing. And I think that graph ended up on the cutting room floor. But if you look at the toxic levels called the UL, the tolerable upper level, and it means it's the level at which somebody some point reported some kind of toxicity. 
And if you look at the distance from that down to what all of the doses are that have been used in any kind of study, it's a gigantic range. You can be way, way below the UL and still be showing a therapeutic benefit. We've published so much data on long-term toxicity or lack of toxicity, lack of adverse events, that I don't think any of the research formulas have any potential for harm, nor do I think any of the -the over-the-counter B-complex have any potential for harm if you follow the recommendation on the bottle, which is usually just take one a day. And I would add, always take it with food in your stomach because some people feel nausea if they take any vitamins or minerals on an empty stomach. And finally, be prepared for your urine to become day-glow yellow. And don't be afraid. It means that a lot of the riboflavin maybe you didn't need, and so your body is shedding it, and it turns your urine yellow. It can be startling to people. Thank you for clarifying that. You concluded that blood tests are not necessarily helpful in determining whether we need broad-spectrum minerals and neutrons. I imagine a lot of people would raise brows at this conclusion. Why do you believe that? They're certainly very useful to find out if you have a frank deficiency, you know, and your doctor needs to know whether or not if your calcium levels are way off, that can indicate some other pathology. So I'm not saying blood tests are not useful. So thank you for letting me clarify that, Anya. Blood tests of certain amounts of nutrients can be extremely useful and can show, as I say, sometimes other pathology or some significant deficiency like B12 if you're a vegetarian that you need to know about or iron deficiency, etc. But blood tests cannot tell us yet what each of us needs for optimal brain function. And you have to stop and think about the difference between those things. People who come in sometimes for one of our studies, or clinicians tell me this too, who are eating really healthy diets and their blood tests show no problem and still have maybe mood swings or whatever, when they take a supplement on top and their clinical symptom gets better, that says to us, they probably had a need for more cofactors than other people did. And actually, I could elaborate on one aspect of that that I've found really interesting, even though I can't prove it yet scientifically. Dr. Linus Pauling, who was a two-time Nobel Prize winner, said in the 1960s, he repeated it again in the 1970s, that what is probably inherited in mental illness are genes that regulate brain metabolism of essential nutrients. Now think about that for a minute. I know that in the military, you've got a lot of people who are developing problems because of what they've gone through, not because of inheritance patterns. But it's been known for millennia that a certain number of mental health problems run in families. You might have ADHD running in a family or depression or suicide running in multiple generations in a family, or anxiety, the parents will say, oh, I'm anxious, my kids got it from me. What is being inherited? No one has yet found a gene for anxiety or a gene for depression. And what Linus Pauling is saying is that probably we've been looking in the wrong place because Mm. probably the genes that are inherited are somehow involved in the essential nutrients and how they function in the brain, the brain metabolism. So I guess what I would say to your audience is that if you see mental health problems running in your family, our experience is you are even more likely to benefit from supplementation than someone for whom we can't point to that. But I can't prove that yet, okay? I've tried to be very much dependent upon the evidence base in answering my questions for you, and I've just gone off into a little bit of speculation there. Thank you for that. I do want to ask you the same question I ask of all my guests. What would you recommend to those service members who are struggling with difficult times? Well, first of all, forget the concept of comfort food. Comfort food is not helping you. It's not comforting you in any meaningful way, except for the five seconds it's in your mouth because, you know, chocolate feels good in your mouth, for example. But 
if you want to comfort your brain, go improve your diet and eat only whole foods. Every bite that you take is a choice that you're making to feed your brain or not. Second, if you're not really getting sufficient benefit from improving your diet and you don't want to rely on medications, and by the way, I know some people benefit from medications. I have no doubts about that, but I'm not talking about medications here though. But you may want to look at one of the formulas for which there is an evidence base. And that's why we list the websites and everything in our book. And also go to support groups, without a doubt. Stay in touch with people. Is there anything else I'm not asking you today that you wish to share? Hang in there. You're not alone. Unfortunately, we have at least 20% of our population now at any given moment is struggling with a mental health challenge. According to the World Health Organization, 50% sometime in their lifetime. So don't make yourself feel alone. Don't isolate yourself and stay tuned in to new developments and please improve your diet. Thank you so much. This was Dr. Bonnie Kaplan and the Blue Grid Podcast. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airman's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical or psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's A-N-N-A dot V dot F-E-D-O-T-O-V-A dot mil at mail 